Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming out today. Is it not gorgeous this weekend? It is awesome. And we're so glad that you're here to worship God with us. Uh, welcome, Cincy Campus. You have some of our green team there, my wife included today. Welcome to you and Bainbridge Campus. Hey, here at Green, can we just give our other campuses a big welcome? If you're joining us online, due to streaming restrictions, we couldn't show you the clip we just saw. So if you want to pause this and Google Esther Breaking Protocol and watch that three-minute clip, you'll, just be, you'll be as confused as everyone here. Um, so check that out. We'll talk about that clip in a little bit. But hey, thank you for coming today. It is almost summer. We are about a week away from the longest day of the year. It's weird getting used to the sun still being up at 9 o'clock. But it's kind of nice, isn't it? Um, yesterday, I got to go on a kayak ride with my friend Owen and a couple of our kids. We got to go down the Tyofnioga River, which I don't think I can spell if you had a gun to my head. But uh, it was beautiful out there. I got to see blue heron, a bald eagle, and four owls. And that was cool. Um, but it just makes me appreciate our creative God, who's made such a beautiful world for us to enjoy. You know, when I was a young person, it was a different time, different place, um, but we lived in western New York, and I used to do something with my church. We would go door to door, and we'd knock on doors, and we'd do a spiritual survey, and that was back when you could knock on doors and not get shot. Um, we'd do a spiritual survey, and we'd ask the famous spiritual question, the diagnostic question. If you were to die today and get to the gates of heaven, and God said, why should I let you in, what would you say? Western New York, what do you think the most common answer to that question was? <laughs> yes, I heard it. Because I'm a good person. Is that the right answer or not? Okay, you're saying it's not the right answer. Is it the answer that's probably most common in our area too? Probably. Probably you've at one time or maybe even now would say that. Because I'm, well, in this series we're learning what it really means to die and have the gates of heaven open for us? What does it really mean? What's the right answer to that question? And today, we're going to learn from one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, the guy John, the apostle, the correct answer to that question. And it's not because I'm a good person. But it's also not probably the most famous answer given in churches. And so this is a little bit of a controversial, little bit of an explosive teaching that I want to dive in and study with you today. So if you would join me in the book of 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to continue where we left off last week. We'll continue in verse 4. And John here kind of continues to contrast true faith with fake faith, or real faith with counterfeit faith. And in verse 4, he's going to do a little bit more of a contrast here about what true faith is supposed to look like. All right, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Here's where it begins. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might, what does he say next? Take away our sins. In him, that would be in Jesus, is 
no sin. Do you believe do you believe that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet never once gave in to that temptation? Okay, that's what John's affirming. He said, I lived with the guy. I know that he never once gave in to temptation. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. All right, as I said, little bit of controversial stuff here. So, two primary types of fake faith. The one is the obvious one that you and I have heard all the time and maybe we've said, someday I get to heaven, why am I going to be let in? It's because of my, my goodness. Because God's going to put all my deeds on a scale and hopefully my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and the gate will open and I'll get let in. And why do we know that's the wrong answer? Because you can't be good enough. Heaven's entrance isn't about good enough. If you want to get into heaven based on your goodness, what's the standard? Perfection. So would every person who so far is on track with that please stand at this time? Me neither, okay? <laughs> so none of us are good enough. None of us are perfect. The Bible says all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. The penalty of our sin is death, eternity in hell. So none of us are good enough to get to heaven. That's pretty clear. And so those who have all their eggs in this basket are going to be sorely disappointed on the day of judgment. When they go expecting their good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds, and Jesus is like, I don't do that. If you're coming based on your goodness, the standard's perfection, and you don't make it. So that's the one that we're pretty familiar with. We've talked about that a lot. But there's another type of counterfeit faith, fake faith, and it's based on something that's a little bit different, it's a little bit more common in church, and it's something that John's addressing here, and it's, it's based on this. Someday, I'm going to get to heaven based on my beliefs. Based on my beliefs. Based on what I believe, based on what I intellectually affirm, based on my beliefs. So someday I get to the gates of heaven, and I'm going to say, okay, it's not based on my goodness, it's based on my beliefs. Now, this sounds right, but John here is trying to go deeper and saying it's actually not. And, and, and he goes through this teaching in chapter 3, and, he, and he's trying to say, listen, there, there's, there's more to it than just believing. When they take polls of Americans and ask, do you believe in Jesus? Do you consider yourself a Christian? The vast majority of Americans respond, yes. They affirm a belief. But John says there's more to it than just what you believe. If you believe in Jesus but there is no change in your life, then Houston, there's a problem. And so what John's trying to get at is 
There's the one extreme where you try to get in based on your goodness. There's another extreme where you try to get in based on your beliefs. And he says, I want to give you a third and better option. I want to give you the true option. The true option is that all your eggs should be in the single basket of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says twice, in him. Now, now I know this is a little bit confusing because you're like, I, 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 don't really, I don't really get this. Like, I'm a beliefs person. I believe in Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Am I missing something? So what John's getting at is ultimately it's not just a matter of intellectual affirmation to a set of beliefs or ideas. Ultimately, it's a matter of a new birth. And if you are in Jesus, there is a new birth. There is, there is something that occurs in your life that changes, that flips everything. Jesus had this conversation with a Pharisee, a religious leader named Nicodemus, who was trying to get in this way. And Nicodemus had that discussion with Jesus, and Jesus just kind of said, Nick, listen, bud, you can't get in to heaven without being born again. And poor Nick, the guy who had studied the word of God extensively his whole life, just scratches his head and says, I don't remember anything about being born again in the Old Testament scriptures. What am I missing? And Jesus says, your first birth was a natural thing, but your second birth is a spiritual thing. And unless you are reborn in me, you cannot see heaven. And so John is teaching the same truth that Jesus taught to Nick, that unless you're in Jesus, unless your hope is in Jesus, there's a systems failure with your faith. Your faith may look good, faith is popular, but faith on its own that isn't accompanied by a change or a new birth is dead. Jesus' half-brother James taught the same thing in his book. And so to be in Jesus means there's this regeneration is a big word. There's this new birth that occurs if you're in Jesus. And then something funny happens when you're in Jesus because some of you are thinking, okay, Justin, I think you're just kind of doing semantics here or you're wordsmithing, you're playing with terms. And I'm not. I'm trying to explain what John's teaching here, which is this explosive idea that your goodness isn't enough and your belief isn't enough. Your hope must be in Jesus because only Jesus is enough. And when your hope is in Jesus, there is this new birth, and the new birth produces a change of life. And some cool things happen when you're reborn. When you're reborn, your life now begins to be marked by freedom from sin. Now, your life, if, if this is where you're saved or reborn, and this is heaven, and this is perfection, your, your life from the moment of your new birth isn't going to look like this. I wish it did. I wish it did. But it's often going to look more like this. But it's going to be going this way. Your, your life is going to be marked by a maturity It's going to be marked by a growth spiritually. It's going to be marked by the habitual sins that you used to be stuck doing repeatedly and couldn't help it. They're going to start to be broken 
Because Jesus didn't just forgive you, he released you from the power of your sin. And so just like good wine or good cheese, you're going to get better with age. That's what happens when you're in Jesus. And that's why John just talks here about those who are in Jesus. Don't keep on sinning. And and so I, I want to pause here and just remind you, what John is not saying is to do better. Because this is what the goodness crowd does, is they're like, okay, i got to do better. i got to start breaking out of these sinful habits and addictions. No, no, no. This isn't a do-better speech from John. This is an examine your faith and make sure it's genuine speech. Because genuine faith grows in obedience. Okay, verse 7. He says, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, as Jesus, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is, what's the next term he says? You notice that term, born of God. There's a new birth. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. This is how we know. We don't have to guess. This is how we know. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So John is being really firm here. He's saying, don't be fooled by by fake Jesus followers. They're plentiful, they're all around in the first century, and can I say in the 21st century, they're plentiful and they're all around. Don't be fooled by fake followers of Jesus. Bad behavior reveals bad faith. Obedience reveals true faith. Now again, John's not here talking about becoming sinless. He's already refuted that. In the first chapter, he had said it this way. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So for those who were saying, well, I'm in Jesus, and that's why I don't sin anymore, John's like, you liar. Of course you still sin. If you claim you have no no more sin, you're, you're fooling yourselves and you're not living in the truth. This isn't about being sinless. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, when many of us were younger, we played with uh, these type of dolls. Dolls have come a long way, if you haven't noticed. This, this is kind of freaky. When you look back at the dolls, some of us, and here I am, a guy admitting I played with dolls. I'm secure enough in my manhood. I played with dolls, okay? Any other guys play with that? No, I wouldn't force you to answer that. No, listen. When we played with dolls, and I had a bunch of sisters, and we always did all kinds of things with our dolls. But listen, 
You could do all kinds of stuff with dolls. You can dress them up. Let me ask you, no matter how much you dress up this doll, is this doll ever going to be a princess? <laughs> Some of you are like, not unless it opens that other eye. That's creepy. Well, okay. You could dress this doll up to look like a princess. You can do a tea party with this doll and teach it to raise the pinky and do the little princess thing. You can do all this stuff with the doll to make it look like a princess, but this doll will never be a princess. Why? Because the doll's not born a, do not born a princess. It's born a doll. It wasn't ever born. It was made. The doll has no capacity to be a princess. It's incapable. You leave that doll alone and it will never do one princess-like thing in its life. It's incapable of being a princess. I know you're saying this is a really dumb illustration, but follow me for a moment. Someone who's not been born in Jesus is incapable of acting like a true Jesus follower. They can try hard to be good enough. But until they've been reborn, they don't have the power of Jesus in them to live like a Jesus follower. And so the way that you can tell over time if someone's faith is real or fake is the, the pattern of obedience in their life. If they're beginning to obey more and they're sinning less, you could say, oh, I see faith growing in them because faith is doing a work in them because they're now given a capacity that they didn't have before. And this is what's so frustrating about those who are stuck over here in their beliefs. Their beliefs are what's going to get them to heaven and their ideas and their opinions and their philosophies and, and their understanding of scripture. And there's never a change that occurs inside of them. And without that change, there's never a new capacity to obey Jesus differently or better. And so they're stuck in this vicious cycle of sin. They have the belief that they think is okay, but it's not accompanied by a new birth. And John's saying there's a system failure for those kind of believers. And he says, you just have to watch out because they're all around you. And they're trying to sway you. Right now in our country, there are more and more people who claim to be Christians who are affirming things that the Bible is very clear are wrong. And there are more and more Christians who are against things that the Bible says are true. And it makes a lot of us scratch our heads and say, am I missing something? Now listen, don't be swayed by those who claim they follow Jesus, but their life doesn't match. Don't be swayed by them because they're probably operating with a fake faith. Now I'm not assuming their motives are bad. Their motives might be really good. Again, there's a lot of people that assume they're God's kids and are going to heaven, and they're not. I'm not saying they're, they're bad people with bad motives. I'm just saying their faith isn't genuine. And because of that, they don't have a capacity to live and believe the truth of this book. And because of that, they're compromising. As our world shifts and our morality shifts, they're shifting with it. 
And John, Jesus' friend and apostle, says, there's a difference that happens when you get in Jesus. There's a new birth. There's a breaking free from sin. You know that song that we sometimes sing, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone? So often, when we talk about being saved by Jesus, we have this concept that our sin, the chains of our sin have broken, meaning someday Jesus pays the penalty for my sin, and I don't have to. So I don't have to carry around the baggage of my sin. That's true. But there's a second part to being in Jesus that John's trying to talk about here, where it's not just like the penalty of your sins have been broken away. When you get in Jesus, the power of your sins get broken. Hence the chains are gone thing. It's not just like I don't drag the baggage of my sin. I no longer drag the power of my sin with me. Literally, when I get in Jesus, the the habits and the attitudes that used to tie me and chain me and rule my life no longer have power over me. Now, that doesn't mean I suddenly just am free from all that stuff. It means that its power over me is now free. And now I have the ability and the capacity to walk in newness of life. I have the ability and capacity to obey Jesus in areas where I couldn't ever obey Jesus before because I was a prisoner to my sin. Often in Christianity, people try to have symbols to identify themselves as Christians. And this isn't a new thing. I mean, now, you, you know, there's always, there's bumper stickers, there's necklaces and jewelry and all kinds of things with the cross symbol to identify you as a believer in Jesus. In the early church, they didn't actually use the cross symbol. Does anyone know what symbol they used? Yeah, it was the fish symbol. And so even in ancient Israel, and I've been to some sites where, where they show this, they've done archaeology and they've uh, dug away underground for thousands of years, and back in the early church, they find the fish symbol was the symbol that they would have at church buildings, they would have at houses of some Christians, some Jesus followers, and the fish symbol simply meant, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason for the fish symbol is because Jesus called a bunch of fishermen, and he told them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so in the first couple centuries, everyone who identified as a Christian would just think of a fish. I'm, I'm now a fisher of men. I'm a follower of the guy who called fishermen and changed their lives. Now, the symbol switched to a cross later on, and today it's a cross. But what John's going to argue here is there's a better symbol for your faith than a cross or a fish. And look with me at what that is. Verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why did he murder Abel? Because Cain's actions were evil and his brother's, Abel's actions were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. There's more imagery, being reborn, passed from death to life. We're in Jesus. How do we know? Because we do what with each other? We love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 
Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. A few years ago, there was a pretty popular phrase. People were writing about it, writing books about it, talking about it, and it was this. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And John here is saying, listen, there's no possible way Jesus and hate other Jesus followers. There's no possible way. Because a mark, an identifying mark of a true follower of Jesus is love. It's not the cross. It's not the fish. It's love. And if Jesus' love is flowing through you, then that is this undeniable mark of a Jesus follower. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Because you might say, okay, if love is what's supposed to mark me, what does that love look like? Well, he says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So what's meant to mark genuine followers of Jesus, people who have been reborn, people whose eternity is rooted in the hope of Jesus and not in their goodness and beliefs, but in Jesus, what marks them is a love for others, especially for other followers of Jesus. And the way that you tell they have that love is they're willing to lay down their life for other people. So, so let me word this maybe a different way. True believers care about each other. True believers help each other. True believers serve each other. True believers defend each other. True believers protect each other. And this is how a true church with true Jesus followers will be marked. Now what's interesting is in many churches, that is not the case. In many churches, you don't find what I've just described. What do you find Jesus followers doing to each other? Arguing, fighting, complaining, splitting apart. There's all this tension. There's all this conflict. And John says, no, that's just not the way it works for true Jesus followers. True Jesus followers have this unmistakable love towards other Jesus followers. This is why I love being part of this church, is there is such a spirit of love and kindness here. This is why Annie and I talk all the time. We are so blessed and grateful that our kids get to grow up in a church like this and think this is a normal church experience. We are so grateful for that. I've experienced differently in my life. Has anyone else? Maybe you have. And you know that it's heartbreaking when Jesus followers act like they're enemies. And that should never be the case with those who follow Jesus. Because the identifier of true faith is this love for one another. 
At the end of the year, we have our annual meetings, and that's where our members come together and we vote. And I was just talking to my friend about this recently. He, he, he was talking about they don't want a guest to come to those meetings. They don't want an unbeliever to come to those meetings. And one of the reasons is you don't want to see Christians fighting. And I just shared with them that we are very intentional at Berean at inviting non-members, at inviting unbelievers, at inviting guests. Come and watch how we conduct business. Watch how we love each other. Watch how we maybe even disagree, but in a spirit of love. Watch how we do it differently. Because that's how the body of Jesus should be. And that it's so rare in America is evident. Eggs are in the wrong baskets. Because when you're in Jesus, he changes how you act towards other people. And that is the identifier and the mark of a Jesus follower. John's not quite down. He's going to, verse 17, he says, if anyone has material possessions, what does this love look like? Well, if anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He's just like, that's not going to happen. God would not let one of his kids ignore the needs of another one of his kids. It's not going to happen. Dear children, verse 18, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Have you ever heard the phrase, words are cheap? Talk is cheap? Anyone can talk a good game. But Jesus' followers live a good game. They don't say, I love you, I love other people. They show it by the way they act. They protect other people. They refuse to gossip about them. They come to their defense. They serve them. They give to them. They give their lives for them if necessary. Now, the challenge with John's teaching, and John knows this is a challenge, and it's why he's trying to be so careful to explain it, is that people can say, okay, okay, I think I have the right beliefs, so now I need to add this kind of love and I'll be set. Again, they're just trying to live here, getting to heaven based on their, themselves, and adding God's love, and it just never works. It's always this pressure of I can't, I can't live up to God's standard. I, I strive and I strive and I can't there, get there. I can never be good enough. I can never act, believe good enough. It just doesn't work. And so he's trying to explain that when you're in Jesus, these things happen. And it's not because I'm trying to prove that I'm in Jesus. I, I don't try to be kind to you because I'm trying to prove that I'm a Jesus follower. Let me put it this way. I don't start my vehicle each day to prove that I have gas. That'd be kind of dumb. But every time I start my vehicle, you know what I prove? I got gas. So when I love other Jesus followers, it's just evidence. It's just proof that I'm in Jesus because his love is in me. And so I'm not trying hard to love other people. In fact, that would defeat the point. 
What I am doing is I am just being in Jesus. My energy and my attention is about being close to Jesus, in Jesus, with Jesus. And when I'm in Jesus, this love is just a fruit of that. It's just coming out of me. And you surprise yourself. Have you ever surprised yourself? Now, now listen, there's times where we surprise ourselves where maybe we hit our, hit our finger with a hammer and something comes out. Right. Ooh. Didn't know that was in there. I think all of us have those moments where stuff comes out and we surprise ourselves with what's in us that's bad. But do you ever have the opposite happen? Because those who are in Jesus do. They, they walk away and they're like, I, I can't believe God gave me the words. Do I still have that picture up there? I am sorry. Good grief. You've been staring at that creepy doll for like 15 minutes. Oh, now you're back with me, right? You want me to go back 15 minutes and start over? <laughs> so when you're in Christ, this love becomes something that comes out of you and you might surprise yourself. Someone's angry at you and normally your instinct is stand your ground, clench your fists, and let's go. Or your instinct is talk to the hand, talk to the hand, talk to the hand, and you walk away. But all of a sudden, you, you, you walk away from that conversation, you're like, that person was being a jerk, and I somehow was being kind to them. That wasn't me. I know me. That was not me. Oh, that was Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. That was you and me. Right? Your, your, your kids are being obnoxious to you, and you're like, ah! And yet somehow you have the ability to show them patience. Like, where'd that come from? Jesus, Jesus, you catch your spouse having lied to you and, and your natural self is to just get defensive and feel insecure and instead you, you forgive them. Where'd that come from? Jesus. So, so I'm giving you these examples so if these things are happening in your life, they're evidence, they're proof, they're fruit that you're in Jesus and he's in you. And if none of those examples applied, Houston, there may be a problem. If good stuff isn't coming out of you unexpectedly, it may be because you're relying on your own goodness or your own beliefs rather than living in Jesus, rather than being in Jesus, rather than being reborn. John's not quite finished. Look at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. The truth. And how we set our hearts. This is where it gets fun. Where we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us. So this morning, maybe your hearts are saying, ah, ah, I'm not sure. The condition of my faith. I don't know if it's genuine. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, no, you know what? It's pretty obvious Jesus is in my life. It's pretty obvious I'm in Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I've seen a change in my life since I've surrendered. I've seen a change in my life since I came to Christ, and it's unmistakable. The people around me have seen that change. They've asked me about it, and I didn't really know how to answer them. Now I do. 
It's Jesus. Verse 22, and, and well, the end of verse 21, we have confidence before God and receive from him everything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Wow. There is this new relationship that I have before God when I get in his son and am reborn by him. And I can approach his throne with confidence and receive what I ask. The opening video clip, clip, that was Queen Esther approaching the throne of the great Xerxes, King Xerxes. The law of the land, when it came to approaching a king, is that no one approaches the throne uninvited. If you approach the king's throne uninvited, you have the privilege of having your head separated from your shoulders. It is a one-way ticket to instant execution. You do not approach the king's throne without the king's permission. You do not approach the king's throne uninvited. But Esther had just found out about a plot to exterminate the Jewish people in this vicious genocide. Unbeknownst to the king and those in the inner circle, the queen was Jewish. No one knew it. She would have probably survived the extermination. But her heart breaks for her people. And she knows the only way to stop this is to get the king's attention. Which means putting her life on line. And so that three-minute walk up the aisle, up the stairs to the king that day was this walk of faith that either the king did my life or I die today. Now, the only exception to come into the king's presence uninvited and, and live is if the king took his scepter, which was the power of his authority, symbol of his power, symbol of his authority, and if he held it out to the person coming to his throne. If he held it out, the guards would stay the execution. That was this act of mercy. And the person could have confidence to approach his throne. And Queen Esther walks before, walks up to King Xerxes, the throne of the mightiest man in the land, And the king takes his scepter and scripture says he looked at Esther and he was pleased with her. He held out his scepter and he said, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you up to half my kingdom. My friends, it's the same imagery that John is here using. Saying when you are in Jesus, you now have 24-7 access to the throne of God. And every time you approach the throne of God in Jesus, the scepter of his mercy is held out to you. And you can ask for what you wish. And you can come to him not in fear, but in confidence. As I was was studying chapter three and studying kind of where he goes with this, it was just this amazing moment of, this is an Esther Xerxes moment. This is totally an Esther Xerxes moment. I think this is what John must have been thinking as he worded it this way. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. When you're in the king's presence, you're always vigilant because at any moment, the king can lift a scepter and the execution can go forward. But in God's presence, my friend, the scepter's never withdrawn for those who are in Jesus. And you live at rest in the presence 
of the king. And that is the difference between putting your eggs in this basket. You're never at rest. You're always making sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You're never at rest. And that's the difference for those who put their, their, their future and their hope in their beliefs is you're always striving and working towards, am I believing the right things? Am, am I, and they're always working towards gaining greater intellectual understanding of truth. Nothing wrong by itself, but their hope in the future is based on them. And for those who are in Jesus, there is a rest in the presence of God. There is a confidence when you come before God and ask. And there is a new love that marks your life. Don't for a moment think that John is telling us this so that we try harder and try to sin less. This is a gut check, faith check teaching. Saying, are you in Jesus? And if you are in Jesus, here's what's going to mark your life. And maybe for you, there's no doubt, there's no question that you're in Jesus. But now you begin to think about some people you love, some people you care about. And you begin to wonder, ooh, I haven't seen a change. I haven't seen a rest. I haven't seen a confidence, and I don't see a love. We should be praying with all our hearts that they have an eye-opening rebirth and get in Jesus. Because my friends, your goodness and your beliefs can't change you, but Jesus can. And he will change anyone who comes to him by faith. And you put your faith in Jesus and you will be unashamed at the final judgment. You put your faith in Jesus and you won't even find a closed gate at heaven. What do you do if you get to the gates of heaven? And someone says, why should I let you in? The beautiful part is, you get to the gates of heaven, that gate's going to be open already because Jesus gave you access to the throne of God. He held out his scepter of mercy. He said, come child, ask whatever you wish in confidence. Would you bow with me this morning? Today, we have the privilege of having lunch all of our campuses. We're going to have a, a clue meeting where we just discuss what God's doing at the church and share a bunch of different things, but we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper. We're going to enjoy food together. And I just want to encourage you to, to come back and, and join us or to stay and join us and just watch how we treat each other. Now I say that and we're going to have a fist fight break out during dinner or lunch. No, not really. But listen, the, the kindness and the love that you're going to experience around the table if you're able to join us today, it's evidence of Jesus transforming us. It's not us faking or trying harder. It's genuine evidence that Jesus has changed us, that we're in Jesus. And as we enjoy the Lord's Supper to, together and, and, and partake of the elements at that lunch, and I, I just want you to know, it, again, it's, it's part of the unity and the love that we get to share as followers of Jesus who have been changed by Jesus, and now love marks our life. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect because we're not. In fact, most of us have a long, long way to go. But 
We've been reborn into the family of God. And we have just this new and growing love for each other and for you. So we'd love to have you stay and join us for lunch, but more importantly, we'd love for you to join our family of faith. And the way that you do it is to turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Make him your master, your Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to your Savior. And put all of your hope and your trust and your faith in him. And when you do that, you will experience the new birth. Jesus changes everything. And the good news is Jesus can change anyone. And my friends, he is just waiting to change you. Father, thank you for the teaching that your servant John left for us. God, for me, this is so motivating. It's so affirming and challenging and inspiring for my faith. I, I've seen what you're doing in my life, and it's often painful. But God, you're growing and maturing me. You're giving me a greater love. And that's not natural to me. That's not normal for me. And I thank you because that's you. And God, I pray that we will just demonstrate that kind of love one to another, that we will be that kind of environment, that kind of church family, that people know us because of our love, that our faith wouldn't be fake, but it would be real and rooted in Jesus alone. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray all this. Amen.